Welcome, welcome to Salt Company. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name is Drake. I am the Salt Company director here. Excited you guys are joining us tonight for uh, our ninth and our last sermon in our Encounters with Jesus sermon series. And so if you guys do have your Bible, you can go ahead and make your way over to Luke chapter 22. That's where we're going to take off tonight, and we are going to land in John chapter 21. But Luke 22 is where you should be. Uh, and while... While you turn there, I want to start with this. Uh, I absolutely, I love this time of year. Anybody else, like, fall is the best season? Do we have any fall lovers in here? Yes. Okay, absolutely love fall. It is, you know, hoodie weather. You got the pumpkin spice lattes. You got warm cider. Okay, it's soup season. My wife and I have had, like, three batches of soup already. You got the good soup. The trees are beautiful. Um, but, hey, I think, I think one of the best things... Uh, about fall is uh, I love sports, okay? Big sports guy here, love watching sports, love playing sports. And there, there's this little period in October where you have uh, football has already begun, a couple games in, baseball is in the World Series, basketball, like the exhibition games are starting for the season, hockey is going, and so it's an awesome, absolutely awesome time. And so how I actually wanted to start tonight is to share with you guys some of the biggest sports failures, some of the biggest blowouts in sports, and I think that if you'll stick with me uh, through it, uh, I think it'll provide some traction for where we're going to go in our time together tonight. But here are some of the biggest fails, the biggest blowouts in sports. Okay, back in 1940, in the NFL championship game, before uh, there was a thing called the Super Bowl, it was the NFL championship game, and the Washington Redskins lost 73-0 to to the Chicago Bears. Okay, like it was the biggest blowout in NFL history. Uh, in fact, they actually ran out of game footballs because of how many times the, the Bears scored and kicked extra points into the stands. Okay, it was probably the last time any Chicago Bears fans was ever happy it was back in 1940, but they at least got that one. Uh, another fail, another blowout, 1916 college football. Cumberland College lost 222 to zero. To Georgia Tech. 222 to zero. Georgia Tech had 1,650 rushing yards in one game. And uh, if you're like, man, I, I've never heard of Cumberland College before. That is because they quit their football program right after the game. They just canceled it. Another one, NCAA basketball, Division II team DeVry played a D1 team, Troy State, and they lost 258 to 141. They lost, that's 117 points, okay? That's, it feels like, man, should you guys even be playing basketball? I'm not sure. Uh, epically failed. Uh, a personal favorite of mine was the 2010 Winter Olympics women's hockey. Okay, Slovakia beat Bulgaria. I know you guys are all tuning into this one. But Slovakia beat Bulgaria 82-0 to <laughs> in hockey, right? Like, that's not a hockey score. I don't even... Is there that much time in hockey? I didn't, I didn't even understand. But like to fail that badly on that big of a stage, man, I feel bad for him. Feel, feel pretty bad for him. But hey, I start with all that because uh, tonight, uh, one, one, I just love sports, but, but tonight we're going to be looking at an encounter of a man who had arguably the biggest fail in all the Bible. And that man, this encounter, is with a guy named Peter. Okay, Peter, as a lot of you guys may know, he was one of Jesus' earliest followers and closest disciples, okay? He was running with the 12. And then, in fact, he was a part of Jesus' inner circle of the three, Peter, James, and John. So he was, he was super close to Jesus. 
And Peter was one of those guys that was like all heart, but half mind. You know, like one of those guys that's like ready, fire, aim. Like that kind of guy just put his head down and went. And that's not always, that's not always a bad thing. Uh, if you remember in the Gospels, Jesus asked his disciples in a pretty crucial moment in his ministry, about halfway through his ministry, he asked his disciples, hey, who do you guys say that I am? And you see, Peter is the only one courageous enough to step forward and say, Jesus, you're the Christ. You're the son of God. And so we see that Peter had some really good moments. In fact, Peter's original name was Simon, but Jesus changed his name from Simon to Peter, which comes from the Greek word Petros, which means rock. And Jesus changed his name because he says, on this rock, on you, Peter, I'm going to build my church, that the church, Christians of all time, the thing that will ultimately change the world will be started because of your faithfulness in ministry. And so Peter, he had this massive calling in the kingdom of God. And what's, re- and what's really interesting is that this guy, Peter, who arguably had the greatest calling in the entire world, arguably also had the greatest failure in the entire world. And that's what we're going to see tonight. And in it, tonight, we are going to see what God thinks of you when you fail, when you sin, when you make mistakes. And not just when you fail like externally, but when you fail internally. You see, because it's one thing to fail like on a test or on a scoreboard. It's a whole nother thing to feel like you're a failure in your heart. To feel like not, not just have I failed, but that I am a failure. And that's what we see in the life of Peter. That he, he failed externally from himself and the guilt and shame dominated his life. And he was wondering, man, does Jesus even want anything to do with me anymore? Does Jesus still want to be around me? And that's what we're going to see tonight. And so here's where we're going tonight. We're going to be looking at the failure of Peter in denying Jesus. And then we're going to see how Jesus responds to Peter's failure and ultimately how he responds to us when we fail. And so if you guys have your Bibles, again, Luke chapter 22, that is where we are going to be. Uh, We saw this last week looking at the encounter of Jesus and the cross that Jesus had gotten sideways with both the religious and the secular leaders of the day, so much so that they wanted to put him to death. And so we see Judas, one of the 12 disciples, betray Jesus, and they ushered these religious leaders into a space where they can actually arrest Jesus and put him on trial. And that's where we pick it up in Luke chapter 22, verse 54. Luke twenty-two fifty-four. Then they seized him, him being Jesus, and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour still, another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Okay, so they, 
They arrest Jesus, just as Jesus had told his disciples that they would, even when they weren't listening to him. And they drag him to a courtyard, like we saw last week, to put Jesus on trial. And the disciples vanish, like they absolutely desert him. But we see in these gospels that really it's Peter and John who actually follow Jesus. But, they have to, but the text says they have to follow him at a distance. They can't get too close to everything that's happening. And it was here that Peter, after after three years of walking with Jesus, three years of hearing every single sermon from Jesus, getting front row to his faithfulness, participating with and in Jesus and the mission of God that has started to change the world. It was in the midst of all of it when he was in the courtyard and he sees his whole world, everyone and everything around him mock and reject Jesus. And he's on the outskirts of this courtyard trying to peer in a little bit warming himself by a fire, and it says that this, this little girl, this servant girl, comes and says to him, hey, hey, aren't you with that Jesus guy? Like, weren't, weren't you following him? And Peter says, no, I don't, I don't know who that is. And so you see other people start to crowd around, and they, and they, they press him a little bit. They're like, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure you know him. Like, you were, you were running with him. You look like one of his boys. You were following after him. And Peter's like, no, I'm telling you, I don't know him. And in the Greek, you actually see that even his tone is getting more and more intense. But one more time, they press in on Peter. They're like, no, dude, you know him. We've seen you around this guy. We know that you know him. And we see that Peter, in this instance, he was, he was pressed. And when Peter was pressed, we see that his biggest failure came out. And we actually see in, in other Gospels that so much so that he actually started to rain down curses just to try and prove that he didn't even belong to Jesus. And it was at that moment that a rooster crowed just as Jesus had promised earlier to signify that he had failed him. And when the rooster crowed, verse 61, says that through the crowds of Peter, through, through the chaos, through everything that was happening, through the shouts of the trial, it was at that moment that Jesus turned and he locked eyes with Peter and what was Peter's response? It says that he went away and he wept bitterly. The man who had boldly promised to, his, to the disciples and to Jesus that he would never leave Jesus nor forsake him, even if the rest of the disciples did. The one who said, Jesus, I'm with you always. I'm not going to fail you. I'm not going to leave you. Arguably just made the biggest failure in the entire Bible. Like Mr. Bold and Mr. Confident was now lowly and filled with shame. And while his best friend Jesus gets, gets stripped and whipped and flogged and, and stripped from his clothes, so much so that they actually sold his clothes in an auction, and then they put Jesus on a cross, Peter is absolutely nowhere to be found. Most scholars say he probably wasn't even near the scene. And so there's the failure. There's the denial of, of Peter, and it's big. But we have to jump over to John 21 because the story is not over yet. And we actually get to see how Jesus responds to Peter's failure. And Jesus does three things in response to Peter's failure that he also does with us when we fail. And the first thing is this, is that he actually runs to you in your shame. He runs to you in your shame. And so John 21, we'll pick it up in verse 1. John 21, 1. It says, after this, now, we already have to stop there because what's the this? Like after what? What are we talking about here? Well, we're, we're talking about chapter 20, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. 
that after the resurrection, Jesus starts appearing to all of these different people just to prove that it really was him and that he did rise from the grave. And there was, there was some confusion about what was going on, but really there was a ton of excitement. Like Jesus, he just conquered the grave. Like this is incredible. And we see that it was in this moment, we see the scene where Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb and there's an angel there. And this angel says to Mary, hey, go tell the disciples and Peter to meet Jesus by the Sea of Tiberias. And I love that. Like, I think the angel threw in the and Peter part because Peter probably wouldn't have shown up otherwise. Like, to follow Jesus, to, to be a part of his crew means that he can't have failed him. And so Peter probably doesn't even feel like he belongs anymore. But Jesus, he wants another encounter with Peter. And Peter, he doesn't know it yet, but Jesus isn't quite done with him. His story isn't over yet. And so let's pick it up back in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Clearly, they weren't important. We're together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Okay, so there's actually a lot going on here in just these little short verses. Peter says, I am going fishing. Dudes in the room, if you ever want a tattoo, this would be a good verse, you know, so that when your wife asks you one day, she's like, why are you going so, fishing so much, babe? You can just say, baby, I'm just trying to be like the apostles, okay? Like, I'm just trying to go fishing a little bit more. But you got to understand, like, for Peter, this verse, like, what he's saying here, it isn't about recreation, it's about occupation, or in other words, this, this isn't like a, hey, I want to go fishing, you know, to catch some bass and put it up on the wall. No, this was a, you know what, I, I failed at this whole Jesus thing. This whole Jesus guy, like, I didn't, I didn't really work for him. I have failed him. And so I'm going to go back to my old job as a fisherman. He's going back to his pre-Jesus life. And I've met a lot of people, like myself included, that when shame arises, when they want to forget about the mistakes that they've made, they don't, they don't even really get angry or, and do something crazy. They don't throw themselves a pity party. Oftentimes, when, when failure comes and when shame tries to overwhelm us, we do what Peter does here, and we go back to work. We try to do whatever we can to keep ourselves busy. That the best recipe in our head to wall out the shame in our life is just to pinball back and forth between busyness and distraction, busyness and distraction, and so Peter here, he isn't doing anything bad per se. He's just not doing what he was meant to do and what Jesus has called him to be. And here's what you see from the life of Peter is that when you fail, when you sin, when you've done something wrong, you're gonna be tempted to go back to your old life, to your old sins, to your old patterns. Like, man, let me, let me just work really hard in my classes and in my clubs and in my job so that I can earn the approval of other people to silence the voices of condemnation in my head. And let, let me just go back to this relationship because I know that in a relationship, even if it's not a good one, at least maybe I can feel some sense of approval. Or let me, let me go back to the drinking for a little bit because at least that can distract me for one more night. But let me tell you guys, is you don't have to do the things you used to do because in Christ, you're not the person you, you used to be. You don't have to do the things that you used to do because in Christ, you're not the person you used to be. 
And I love it because they get in the boat, these professional fishermen, they fish all night, and they catch nothing. Like this was God's doing. God was providentially at work by allowing them to catch absolutely nothing, and he's trying to get their attention. Like you think, you think God, Jesus, is just going to let his disciples roll off? No, no. He's pursuing them. He's chasing after them. He's running after them. And often, that is exactly what Jesus does in our own hearts and in our own lives. That's what he does with us. You see, you can often tell when God is at work in your life and chasing you down when he starts to complicate things because he's showing you that the way that you're living, the way that you're operating isn't working. And so if it feels like God is just stonewalling everything in your life, everything you want to do, when the relationship doesn't satisfy, when the approval from others isn't enough, when the drinking only works for one night, maybe it's just quite possible that God is just trying to get your attention because he's coming after you. He's pursuing after you. He runs after you in your shame, and he's trying to show you, I'm the one that you're looking for. I'm the better thing that your life wants. And so we see in verse four, we'll pick it back up. It says, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. Seems like a pretty salty answer, to be honest, which makes sense after fishing all night, not catching anything. But he said to them, cast the net on the other side, on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And so I love this. I think you start to see a little bit of Jesus' personality pop off on the page. He shows up on the shore, again, to show that he's pursuing after them, and then he kind of messes with them a little bit. He's like, hey, little kids, which clearly they're grown men at this point. But he's like, hey, little kids, no fish, huh? And then he gives some fishing advice. And I imagine he's smirking a little bit from shore. And he's just like, hey, you, got, you guys just try to throw it on the other side of the net or on the other side of the boat. You guys just try to throw it on the other side of the boat. Like this would be like going to an NFL game. The team gets demolished and they are heading back to one of the, they're heading back to their locker rooms. And, and one of you guys would be like, hey, how did the game go? And the players were like, man, it went terrible. We got absolutely killed. And you're like, did you try passing the ball? It's like, no, I didn't think of that. Of course we thought of that, yes. Like, absolutely. And so you can imagine Peter in this situation, again, who has no idea that it was Jesus, probably frustrated from a long night of fishing and catching absolutely nothing. And he just sees this guy way off in the distance. And he says, hey, you should switch sides of the boat. And you got to imagine Peter's like, oh, switch sides? Really? Like, that's a secret? Fish is over here? Like, really, that's all, who is this guy? But some of you, you, you might be hearing this story and you're like, I've heard this story before. Like, cast the net on one side, no fish. Cast the net on the other side, lots of fish. I've heard this before. And it's because this, this miracle has already happened in the Gospels. You see, Jesus does it here, and he does it all the way back at the very beginning of his ministry. And catch this, it was on the day that he first called Peter to follow him. And so don't miss this. Guys, here in the moment of Peter's greatest failure, Jesus recreates the moment that he called Peter into a relationship with him. And so how does Jesus respond to Peter? 
he recreates a miracle that sends a message that I'm still seeking after you, that you're not too far gone. Come and follow me again. Be a part of a relationship with me. And so I I don't know what you guys have done. I don't know what your hands have touched, what your eyes have seen, what you have participated in. I don't know your story. All I know is the heart and the grace of God. That in the midst of failure, Jesus says to Peter and to us, you still belong here. I still want you. Come, follow me. And watch what Peter does next. Verse seven, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And so Jesus, after Peter's worst mistake, he isn't angry. He doesn't yell at him or scold him. He isn't passive aggressive towards him. He's kind and he's intentional and he's invitational. And he says, come. And Peter does here in this moment, what I hope that many people in the room will do tonight is he stops running away from Jesus and he starts moving towards Jesus. And it says that he, he put on his clothes and threw himself into the sea, which again, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you put on clothes just to jump into the water? And then it says that he threw himself into the sea. Like this isn't, a, this isn't a graceful dive. It isn't a gallop into the sea. No, it says he threw himself into the sea. You see, because Peter knows that Jesus is mercy embodied, that Jesus loves to pour out mercy, that his favorite thing in the world to do is to forgive failures, to redeem rebels, and that the only thing that can rival the power of God is the grace of God. And so what do you do after you make a mistake? What do you do after the worst mistake of your life? You swim to Jesus. You see, Peter's not elegant here. He is an absolute mess, and he doesn't make any sense. But he's a mess that moves towards his Savior. You see, Jesus, he he doesn't expect us to to clean up and look good before we worship him. If if that was the case, there would be nobody here able to worship Jesus. And some of you might be here tonight, and you feel like Peter. You feel far from God, and you don't know the right words to say to get back to him. You don't know the right rules that you have to do in order to enter back into his presence. But I think that we can learn from the life of Peter that it doesn't have to be clean. It doesn't even have to make a whole lot of sense. You just have to be honest and move to Jesus. And so hear me on this, guys. After your mistakes, you can swim to Jesus because he's already ran after you. He's already pursued after you in your shame and in your worst moments. And so that's the, that's the first thing that we see in this encounter, that Jesus runs after you in your shame. But not only that, point number two is this, is that Jesus redeems your past. Jesus redeems your past. Verse nine says this. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. That's important. We're going to get to that in a second. But they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. And so Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Come and have breakfast. It's my wife's favorite Bible verse. It's not John 3.16. It's not Romans 8.1. 
It's not Philippians 4.13. It's John 21.12. Come and have breakfast. But I think we can see some really interesting things here. You see, Peter just gets done with a lot of effort for Jesus. He's swimming towards Jesus. He's hauling a bunch of fish back to the boat. Meanwhile, Jesus is just standing there beside a breakfast that he's already prepared. Did he need the fish that Jesus or that Peter just caught? Nope. Verse 9 actually shows us that Jesus, he has the fish already on the grill, okay? He's already making some fish tacos for breakfast. Where did he get the fish? No idea, but he's Jesus, so he can do whatever he wants. But you see the contrast here is that Peter, he seems to be trying to prove himself while Jesus is just inviting him in. Like Jesus, he isn't asking Peter to, to prove himself or to prove anything here. He doesn't even need the fish that Peter just caught. No, Jesus just comes to him and he prepares a table for him. But Peter still doesn't get it. He's still trying to impress Jesus. He's like, Jesus, look at me. I'm swimming to you, Jesus. Jesus, look at me. I'm, I'm hauling all these fish for you, Jesus. And I think that Peter resembles, honestly, a lot of us. And that he's just grasping half of the gospel here. You see, I think at this point, he, he understands that Jesus loves him, but he's still trying to prove himself to him. He's still trying to prove himself to Jesus. You guys ever feel like that? That you know that you have like the love of God, but now you have to prove yourself in order to keep the love of God? Or deep in your heart, you're constantly asking yourself the question, am I enough? Like, does Jesus, does God truly and actually love me? I heard this a while ago, uh, hard turn, but Oprah Winfrey gave uh, the commencement address for Harvard one year. That's when you know that uh, your school is big time when Oprah Winfrey gives the commencement speech. But she said something really interesting in that speech that Peter is going through right here in this moment. And and Oprah said this, she said, I've done over 35,000 interviews in my 27-year career. And as soon as the camera shuts off, everyone always inevitably turns to me and asks me this question. Was that okay? I heard it from President Bush. I heard it from President Obama. I heard it from heroes and housewives. I've heard it from victims and perpetrators of crimes. I even heard it from Beyonce and all her Beyonce-ness. They all want to know one thing. Was that okay? Everyone wants to know. Everyone wants to know, am I enough? Was that okay? Because at the heart level, every single person is asking the same question. Like no matter how successful you are, no matter how broken your story is, everyone is asking the question, am I okay? Am I actually loved? And Peter, he comes to the shore and he's trying to prove himself. And he's asking the question, okay, I've failed. I have made mistakes. Does Jesus want anything to do with me anymore? Am I okay? Like, does Jesus actually, can he actually forgive me? Can he actually redeem me? You know, maybe if I just performed for him, maybe if I just got in the Bible a little bit more, maybe if I just prayed a little bit more or stopped sleeping around, maybe if I stopped hanging out with certain groups of people, maybe if I did this or did that, am I okay? We're gonna be moving on in our text to see how Jesus redeems Peter's past. But let me just say this before we move on is that in Christ, you have the finished work of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection applied to your account. And so there is absolutely nothing that you could do that would make God love you any more or any less than he does right now in this moment. You see, one, one quote that's always stuck with me is this. 
is that God does not love you to the degree that you are like Christ. He loves you to the degree that you are in Christ. And that is always 100%. And so I don't ever have to be unsure of God's love for me. Like in all of my mess, in all of my failures, I have the unconditional love and absolute acceptance from the Father. And so you don't have to prove yourself anymore. You don't have to wonder, am I okay anymore? Because in Christ, you are. In Christ, you are. And Peter is about to find that out. Look down at verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And so Jesus, he has set up this whole encounter with the redemption and the restoration of Peter in mind. You see, Jesus, he doesn't want Peter to go his whole life having his failures define him. And so I mentioned that charcoal fire earlier. Seems like a pretty random detail, but here's why John included it, because it's actually really intentional. Fire is mentioned 364 times in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, fire is a pretty popular idea. But there are only two places in all the Bible that a charcoal fire is mentioned. The first was when Peter denied Jesus. If you remember, he's out in the courtyard and he's warming up his hands. And the slave girl comes and asks him, hey, do you know this man? And he denies Jesus. And it says that that was a charcoal fire. And so that was the first time that it shows up was when Peter denies Jesus. And the second time and the last time that a charcoal fire is mentioned, right here. Right here in this text when Jesus is restoring Peter. You see, Jesus sits here and he recreates the same fire. Again, he's recreating a moment in Peter's life. And and Jesus is showing Peter, hey, your failure will not be the, the the final point in your life. My faithfulness will be. And that's why he asked Peter three times if he loves him. Now you might be wondering, like, what is Jesus doing here in this moment? I used to think that Jesus was just being really mean to Peter here. Like Jesus was like, do you love me? Like, like Simon Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Mm, didn't look like it a few days ago. Didn't look like it, Peter. So let me ask you again, do you love me? Like that's what I thought that Jesus was doing here. And I thought that he was treating Peter that way after he failed because in my own heart, oftentimes that's how Jesus treats me after I fail. But what this text shows us is something entirely different. You see, if Jesus wanted to shame Peter, what would he have done? He wouldn't have pointed backwards or he he would have pointed backwards. He would have kept saying like, Peter, do you love me? Yes. Okay, then why did you deny me? Peter, do you love me? Okay, then why did you treat me like that? Peter, do you love me? Okay, then why did you abandon me? But Jesus, he doesn't do that. You see, instead of pointing backwards, he actually points forward. He says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I do. I know you do, Peter. Now feed my sheep. Not the animal, but the people of God. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I do. Okay, let's move on. I know you love me. Feed my sheep. 
And Peter realizes in this moment that, hey, I denied Jesus three times, and I thought that that, that that was the failure that was going to end my relationship with him. But now he asks me this question three times because he's bringing me back into a relationship with him. You see, the fire used to represent Peter's greatest failure in life, but now the fire represents how great Jesus' faithfulness is. And so Jesus brings Peter back and recreates the fire, she, the fire scene, not, not to shame him, not to open up a womb, but to heal him and to set him free and to help him live the life that he was already called to. And let me tell you guys, this is what Jesus does in our own lives, that he draws us in with unbelievable grace, but he doesn't want to keep you where you're at. He wants something so much better for you. And so we say it often that it's okay to not be okay. Like it is okay to not be okay. We just don't want you to stay there. And so the addiction, the loneliness, the sexual encounters, the anxiety, sins, past, present, and future, the worst moments, the worst failures, he redeemed Peter's past and he can redeem your past too. Like the God who stands outside of time is not caught off guard by your sins. He's not mad at you. He's not disappointed in you if you're in Christ. Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is paid in full. He's not upset. He's not upset for those in Christ. But one more thing that from the story that we see. So we saw Jesus runs to you in your shame. He redeems your past. And one more thing, he also redefines your future. Jesus redefines your future. Verse 18 says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So Jesus, he wants so much more for Peter here. Uh, he doesn't want Peter just to feel forgiven. And okay, well, Peter, you've made a lot of mistakes. So now you, now you just got to sit on the sidelines for the rest of your life. Like you, you're just kind of a JV Christian now. Just sit on the sidelines, just come to church, read your Bible, and that's it. No, 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 he wants to redefine his future and actually give him a really big vision for his life. You see, Jesus chose Peter to lead his church, not despite his failures, but because of his failures. His failures actually serves as a means to understand God's grace in his own life and to propel that forward to a watching world. You see that Jesus was able to turn Peter's, his greatest mess into his message his greatest trial into his testimony and his greatest point of misery in his life into an opportunity for ministry. And he says, Peter, go feed my sheep. Go to the people of the world. Go to everybody and everywhere and tell them that you have a God who can redeem anybody and anything. And Jesus tells Peter, it's kind of an odd way that he put it, but he tells Peter that there's gonna come a day when eventually you will die for me. And it's crazy what God can do, how he can actually start to transform Peter. Because Jesus is saying to Peter, hey, Peter, three weeks ago, brother, you looked at death straight in the face when you were in the courtyard. And, when you were in the courtyard, and you looked at death straight in the face, and you denied even knowing me. You denied your faith in me. But there will come a day... When no matter what comes your way, no matter what the cost is in front of you, you will look at me and say, he's worth it. And you will die for me. 
And so Peter's story, Jesus begins to rewrite it here even before it happens. And we know that Peter's hands, like this text says, would be stretched out. It's this idea of crucifixion. And church history tells us that this verse actually came true, that that Peter would go on and be crucified for his faith in Jesus. But the crazy part was that we see throughout church history is that Peter was on his way to be crucified for his faith in Jesus. And he says, yes, I'll go to the cross. Yes, I've placed my faith in Jesus. Yes, I'll do whatever I want. But as he was headed to the cross, he says, don't do it like that. Actually, crucify me upside down because I'm not even worthy to be crucified just like my Savior was. And so put me upside down. You see, Peter went from a guy whose life was dictated by his failures to a life dictated by his faith. And it's all because Jesus had gripped his heart. Jesus had gripped his heart. And so here's the last thing that I want to say to you guys as we close, is that there may be people in the room tonight who are thinking, man, that's all great. Like Jesus can do that to Peter's life. But man, you don't know what I've done. Like, I don't know if Jesus can just dismiss all of my sins and failures, that he can just wave a wand and it all goes away. Like, that's too good to be true. But let me tell you, that's not what he does. Like, how can Jesus be so kind and gracious to Peter? How can Jesus be so kind and gracious to us? Because he didn't dismiss Peter's sins and he doesn't dismiss ours either. He paid for him and he went to the cross to do it. And Jesus looks at Peter And he says, Peter, I know what you've done, but I've paid for it on the cross and I rose again to prove it. And Jesus can look at you and whatever failures you have, both both externally and internally. And even when you don't wanna share it to the world, he knows it and he looks at you and he can say, I know what you've done and I've paid for it. I know what dominates your life and I've buried it. I know what your deepest guilt is and I put it in the grave. You see, he did it with Peter and he can do it with you too. He runs to you in your shame. He redeems your past and he redefines your future. He did it with Peter. He can do it with you. He's done it with so many people, a part of Salt Company, and he's the only one who can, but he delights to do it. So would you swim to Jesus tonight? Would tonight be the night? Let me pray for us. Jesus, in many ways, we are all Peters. We're all people who have denied you, denied knowing you. Lord, fled from you when things got difficult. And so in many ways, we, we're all Peters. But Lord, the defining moment in someone's life is what happens when they're on the boat and they see you. Do they swim to you? Or do they move away from you? And Lord, I pray that there'd be many people tonight who are in the boat, who are in the, the storms in the midst of life, unsure of what to do, maybe feel weighed down by guilt and shame from past. And I pray that they would see you and that they would swim to you. Lord, and the greatest news in the entire world is that we serve a God who doesn't scold us, who isn't passive aggressive towards us, who isn't angry with us when we fail, but who knows that we're gonna fail and yet still invites us in and still delights to show us mercy, who still delights to forgive failures. 
And so, Lord, would we be able to look above the clouds tonight and realize just how great and merciful someone like you is. Lord, that you have always been sovereign, that you always will be sovereign, that because the tomb is empty, because you ran out of the grave, that we can too in our own hearts and in our own lives, that the grave doesn't have to define us anymore, that we can go from death to life because of who you are. You can rewrite Peter's story. You can rewrite our story. Lord, would our failures not define our future? Would you define our future? Lord, we love you. We trust you. Would you use this time? Help us to see you. Help us to praise you. In your name we pray. Amen.